Welcome to Liberated Living Ministries with John and Beverly Sheesby. You are listening to the Seed to Seed message for July 2019. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit our website at liberatedliving.com. Well, let me tell you where we're going this evening. On the 1st of January of this year, I was reading in Luke chapter 17. This is verse 5 of Luke chapter 17. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. One of the things you discover when you look at Jesus, his life and his teaching and the way he functioned is there is such a connection between faith and authority. It's easy to believe for that which you know you are authorized to believe God for. If you know that he said in his word, it's yours, it's easy to believe him. So faith and authority go together tremendously. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will you not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me? For I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. So that's the master. And he's saying this is, this is the way a master behaves. He doesn't serve the servant. He lets the servant serve him. Why? Because he is the master. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. I'm not going to teach that passage, but here's the thing that struck me again as I was reading on the 1st of January. You have to know who you are. If you know you're a master, you behave like a master. If you think you're a servant, you behave like a servant. And the problem with a servant is when you've done everything that is expected of you, you still feel condemned. You feel like you've not not done enough. It's a miserable existence. I lived there for so many years. And I can't tell you what a relief it is to know that I am not a servant. I'm a son. And as a son, I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, I'm the master of all because of my identity. And the Lord said to me, he spoke to me through this, and he said, I want you to teach my people this year, know who you are. So I've been doing a series on know who you are. And I started off Uh, Just looking at what Jesus taught in the Gospels, the comparison between a servant and a son. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you my friends because everything I've received from the Father. So a Christian never needs to walk in darkness because we have received the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, but God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And the Spirit lives within us so we can know the deep things of God. Not because we're special, but because we're sons. And because His Spirit has come to reveal the Father to us and reveal the Father's heart and the Father's purpose and so on. Anyway, that was in January, and so we've gone on. But 
It's like the Holy Spirit's got me dealing so much. I've dealt the last couple of months really a lot with condemnation. And I was wanting to go on in Galatians chapter 4. And it's like the Holy Spirit just arrested me and said I needed to cover a little bit more ground. So I'm covering it with you. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. And let's read a few verses there and into chapter 4. Verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3 says, For you are all sons, daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The word put on there is the Greek word enduo. It's like clothing yourself. You're clothed with Christ. When you're baptized into Christ, you became enveloped in the person of Christ. You have a totally new identity. He says in the next verse, he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. All artificial differentiations go away because we're in Christ. So whether it's gender, race, whatever it is, it goes away in the reality that we have a new identity. <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. That is so good because here's, here's the issue. So many of us are, are still dragging so much of what we once were and not recognizing. And that, that's why I have radical baptismal services. I just say to people, get in that water and don't come out of there, you know, <laughs> until you've left that old you behind, because that's, that's what, you, what happened at Calvary. But you need a tangible, practical illustration of what happened at Calvary, that you died with Christ and the old you is lying at the bottom of the pool. We had a baptismal service in Dothan, Alabama in 19... 94, and there was a little girl, 11 years of age. She had had broken her back, and she had had numerous back surgeries. And she went down into the water, and she came up totally healed. And she said to me, Brother John, when I got to the top step, I turned around and looked down, and there was a little girl who looked just like me, lying at the bottom of the pool. See, your old identity is gone. You were buried with Christ. You died to your old identity. You're a new creation. When that gets inside of you, because so many of us have got this hangover in our consciousness of that which is past and gone in Christ Jesus. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Yeehaw! Which means that the promises of Abraham are ours. That means that God has called us to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. If you've read my book, you know that I was pastoring a little church in the middle of Africa in Gweru in Zimbabwe. And sitting under my jacaranda tree, I got hold of that. I saw the Abrahamic calling on my life and on every believer's life. The Abrahamic promise. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I was just foolish enough to believe that God could bless all the families of the earth through me. And I'm sitting in Africa. 
How arrogant is that? No, it's not arrogant. It's boldness based upon the revelation of the word. See, you're the seed of Abraham. You have the promises of Abraham. You are to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And in order for you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, everything that you need is provided. Everything has been provided. Because you're the seed of Abraham. <laughs> oh, God. Some of you looking at me like a calf at the new gate. Okay, verse 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. Well, I love that phrase. See, but he's a child. And so he's not different from a slave, though he's master of all. It's like your true identity is hidden. Not because God is concealing it from you, but it's hidden because we've got so much fog over our eyes that we cannot see our true identity and our destiny. That he has raised us up to be master of all. He said in, it says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham was heir of the world. This is my father's world. It doesn't belong to the devil. It's my father's world. Therefore, it belongs to me as his child. <laughs> Ooh, to possess the inheritance that is allotted to me and to have dominion over what he has created and not be dominated by greed and dominated by fear and dominated by everything else that motivates the world in its pursuit of prosperity or whatever. See? Okay, let's move on. But he's under guardians until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were, in ch were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Just peg that away in your mind. We're coming back to that. The elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. I want to say this. The spirit is the spirit of adoption. Get to know the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes your sonship, your daughtership, a reality to you. He's the one who leads you into intimate communion with the Father. Become a friend of the Holy Spirit. He's so important in this whole journey into destiny. And when I talk about destiny, I'm not thinking about, I've got to make it happen. But just what God has in his heart for you. Therefore, you are no longer a slave or a servant, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. But then, indeed... When you did not know God, you served those which are by nature not gods. And now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements in which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years." Can you see the absolute amazement on the part of the Apostle Paul? He's just given us a revelation of who we are. And then he says, how is it you go back 
to these beggarly elements of don't touch this and observe this day and, and observe this feast and all the other junk that is invading the Christian church today. Why? Because people don't know who they are as sons. And so they're attracted by going back into Judaistic stuff. Listen, that's what you came out of. That's what Jesus died to set you free from. Why do you want to go back under it? You observe days and months and seasons and years, he says. So what are these beggarly elements? Or as Paul calls them in Colossians chapter 2, the basic principles of the universe or of the world. The basic principles of the world, of every culture and every religious system outside of Christianity is this. If you're good, you are rewarded. If you're not good, you're punished. Every system in the world. You were raised in a family where the basic principles of the universe were the guiding foundation to the way you were raised. Behave right, you get blessed and rewarded. Behave wrongly, and you're deprived of a reward at least, and at worst, you're punished. Okay? Every religion is based upon that, including the Old Covenant. The law of Moses is fundamentally the basic. That's why he says to them, why after you've been set free from that law, are you submitting again to these basic principles of the universe? Now, as I was meditating upon this, I was having a quiet time and, and I read again. I'm reading through the book of Hebrews again. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. <laughs> Ooh, folks, we're in the good things. <laughs> we're not in the shadow anymore. We're in the reality. A shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Now listen to this verse. For then would they have not ceased to be offered for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. Now, now just dream for a moment. Just dream for a moment. Imagine if you could live in a place with no more consciousness of sin. Now, he said... If those animal sacrifices in Leviticus could have been efficacious for the cleansing of the worshiper who drew near, they would have had no more consciousness of sin. So what we've got to discover is, does the sacrifice of Jesus have the efficacy to free me from the consciousness of sin. See, because what is holding God's people back is so often at the point 
of expressing your kingdom life and your authority as a son, the enemy attacks you at the point of your consciousness, self-consciousness, sin consciousness, unworthiness. And so you're faced with someone in a wheelchair and you feel the prompting of the Spirit to just put your hand on them and just speak life into them and tell them to come out of that wheelchair and what happens? immediately you start feeling this inner turmoil of, but I'm undeserving, I'm not worthy, it won't happen, I can't do it. And we start second-guessing ourselves because we've, we've got this heightened consciousness of self, of sin, of condemnation, of guilt, of shame, all are the product of the effects of the law and of the basic principles of the universe. You see, if you're not good, if you're not good, you won't be rewarded. So, <laughs> look at what he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the what? The holiest. The holiest. What, is, what is he talking about? the Holy of Holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, he's using liturgical language that harkens right back to Leviticus chapter 16, and the high priest one day a year going into the holiest of all. And how did he go in? Well, he had to slaughter a bull. He had to take two young goats. The one was going to be killed for the blood to be sprinkled. The other was the scapegoat, which was going to be released into the wilderness. And so the blood of the bull he would take into the holiest of all with the blood of the ram and lay hands on the, the head of the other uh, goat, and that would be released into the wilderness. And he would enter into the holiest of all one day a year with that blood. But now we read in verse 2, that wasn't efficacious for permanent removal of sin. He said, if they could have done it, it would never have needed to be repeated this is the key thing, that if you get hold of this deep in your spirit, it'll begin to renew you deep inside where feelings of insecurity, insecurity, inadequacy, feelings of aloneness, feelings of isolation, lack of intimacy, rejection, all of that can be dealt with by a revelation of the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Now, I love the Greek language. It is such a wonderful language because it has ways of expressing truth in ways that no other language can do. The Greek has a tense that is called the perfect tense. It's not like the English perfect tense. The perfect tense in the Greek is this. The perfect tense calls to mind a previous action in time past, but does not focus on the moment in time. It focuses on the 
resultant state of being. That's, that's the phrase. So, you have to illustrate it. Bev and I are married. In 1973, in First Baptist Church in East London, we went through a ceremony of being married. But when I say Bev and I are married, we're not thinking of the ceremony. We're thinking of the reality of our life together. We are married and in 46 years. It's grown sweeter and sweeter. So the resultant state of being is what is important. Now here's what is so important about Hebrews chapter 10. Every verb that talks about cleansing, sanctification, is in the perfect tense, which means it's done. It's a done deal. And what the writer to the Hebrews is emphasizing is not the event where it happened, but the fact that you are in a state. Okay, let's check all the perfect tenses. Go back to Hebrews 10 verse 2. He says in the middle of the verse, For the worshippers once purified. Purified is perfect tense. So they were purified, but they were in a state of having been purified. They're pure. They're clean. They're clean, and they, therefore there is no consciousness of sin. So the reality of your consciousness of sin, whatever it might be, is based upon your understanding on the completeness of what happened to you the moment you believed in Jesus. Were you cleansed or not? See, if you were cleansed, then sin is done. It's not a deal anymore. Oh, Brother John, I can't believe you said that. (laughs) That's where we lose the religious crowd. They can't handle that. Because they've been programmed to understand. Their whole liturgy of church is coming in dragging because you feel so unworthy, going into the worship and hoping that your spirit gets lifted up and going to the altar and telling God how miserable you are and you're going to do better from now on. And you leave church and your spirit is lifted to go through another week until next Sunday when you come back beat down, feeling unworthy, you failed. You've Come on, people. That's no way to live. You were purified once. Hapex is the Greek word for once. It is used of what is so done as to be of perpetual validity and never needing repetition. It is used of what is so done as to be of perpetual validity and never needing repetition. Get ready. That's Hapex. When he talks about cleansing, Under the new covenant, he adds a Greek preposition, epi, which means over and above. He wants you to know it's not just once, maybe. It's once and for all, as the way it's translated. Epi-hapax. Look at verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified. Perfect tense. 
Oh, Brother John, I'm not yet sanctified. Yes, you are. You were sanctified. You're in a state of sanctification because it's in the perfect tense. You were sanctified by that will through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Epi plus hapax. <laughs> once over and above. It's, it's just, it's done. It can't be ever repeated. You were sanctified and you are in a state of having been sanctified. By that will, he says. What is that will? Look at verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you desire not, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. <laughs> he takes away the first, the law. The sacrifices, the whole bang tutti, that he may establish the second. And the second is his body on the cross as the perfect lamb of God. Sacrifice there. See, one of the greatest revelations that I could ever share with any one of you is this. When a worshiper did draw near and brought a lamb because he was feeling a consciousness of sin, he would bring a lamb, and the lamb had to be without blemish. The priest would examine the lamb, and if the lamb was without blemish, the worshiper would be accepted based upon the unblemished lamb. Never once did the priest examine the worshiper. <laughs> Never once did the priest say to the worshiper, okay, confess your sins. They didn't even have to confess their sins. They just had to bring the lamb. <laughs> Man, we, we, this gospel is amazingly good. It's so amazingly good. And some of you can understand this because some of you, when the first time you heard Larry teaching, you thought, I'm not going back. That guy's teaching error. But there was something in you that said, man, that's good. Can this be true? Can I really believe that this is the truth? And something within you just leapt up and grabbed a hold of it and said, yes, it's got to be the truth. Because if I hold on to anything else that does not exalt the finished work of Jesus Christ, I am in idolatry. I am worshipping a false religion, a false God. Because the only God has revealed himself in his son Jesus, who made the perfect sacrifice on the cross for all sin, for all time, once and for all. And by that sacrifice, you have been sanctified. Well, Brother John, but I don't feel sanctified. I don't care how you feel. 
I really don't care how you feel because your feelings and your mind has to come into line with God's, what, what God's Word says. God's not going to modify His Word and the, the revealed truth of, of Jesus' finished work just to accommodate your feelings or your religious prejudices. <laughs> okay. So, once for all, once for all, I grew up, my parents were both musicians and Bev and I are both musical and our kids are all musical. And, but my parents, I can remember them singing this duet many times. Listen to this. Free from the law, O oh happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O oh sinner, receive it. Once for all, O oh doubter, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. There on your cross, your burden upbearing, thorns on his brow, your Savior is wearing. Never again, your sin need appall. You have been pardoned once for all. Now we are free, there's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, O oh, hear his sweet call. Come, and he saves us once for all. Children of God, O oh, glorious calling, surely his grace will keep us from falling, passing from death to life at his call. Blessed salvation once for all. Once for all. It's done. It's done. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross. The veil of the temple. Remember that. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's present tense. In other words, we can continually. Just And, and he uses the same word as is used in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 of the worshiper who drew near. It's the same word that he uses in Hebrews chapter 4, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, where we will obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near. And listen, we live in the holiest of all, but you understand there are times when it's so good for your soul just to draw near. Draw near to the truth. Draw near to the reality. Draw near. Rehearse and remind yourself of what the Word says. You are sanctified. It's a done deal. Man, if you can remember the perfect tense. Just remember the perfect tense. That'll set you free right here in Hebrews chapter 10. It's, per it's done. You're in the resultant state of being of a past action. And the past action is you were sanctified. So you're clean. You're clean. He said, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Perfect tenses again. Your heart's been sprinkled clean. Your bodies are washed with pure water. 
What does that hark back to? Leviticus 16. The priest had to bathe himself, and then he brought the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkled the altar, and, and so on. What's the evil conscience? The word evil here is so misunderstood because immediately we think of evil, we think of morally bankrupt. But the word evil is the word poneros in the Greek. And the word, the root of that is ponos, which is the word for pain. So really poneros is pain ridden. Something that is defective because it is so damaged by pain. See, here's what's happened. Our consciences have become so damaged through the influences that affected us in our childhood, in our upbringing, that our consciences are not a good measure of right and wrong or of God's pleasure or of peace. See, we can deceive ourselves with an evil conscience, or we can hammer ourselves into the ground with guilt and condemnation because of an evil conscience. And here's the wonderful thing. Your heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It's a done deal. Well then, why am I still battling with all these things? Ah, Paul says... Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And some of you understand that so well because you've been coming to these Monday night deals and Tuesday night at Ashton and you're saying, yeah, my mind has been renewed and it's just changed. It's changed. And as my mind has been renewed, I found this peace coming on the inside because I don't battle with that old guilt and condemnation that I used to have as a constant companion that was always with me, accusing me and telling me what to do. Yeah. See, the problem with an evil conscience is this. Hebrews tells us that your evil conscience is going to produce in you dead works. Because not only does your heart need to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, but in Hebrews chapter 9, he says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? See, dead works are the things that your conscience suggests that you should do to compensate for how badly you feel about yourself. <laughs> So, abstaining from a piece of cake tomorrow because you overate today is a dead work. <laughs> Just a little practical illustration. See, what we do is we, 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 we feel badly about our behavior, so we think of a compensatory behavior. But if the spirit didn't direct it, it's got death in it, no matter how good it might seem to you. That's why I'm telling you, your, our conscience needs to be renewed by the word of God, by the truth of God, and become so subject 
to the impulses of the Holy Spirit that we hear the Spirit before we hear all those whispers of the evil conscience that we've been programmed with. Do you get this? Are you getting this? Your heart has to be sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and then sprinkled clean from the dead works that your evil conscience suggests to you. See, if people would get hold of this, we would have about 99% less books on prayer. Because most of the books on prayer are written by people who are written by an evil conscience. They don't know who they are. And they're coming to God, begging Him to do what He's already done for them and given them authority to do. A friend sent this to me. John Eldridge put this out. It's called The Abundance of His House. A slave feels reluctant to pray. They feel they have no right to ask, and so their prayers are modest and respectful. They spend more time asking forgiveness than they do praying for abundance. An orphan is not reluctant to pray, but feels desperate. They feel desperate, but their prayers feel more like begging than anything else, but not sons. Sons know who they are. Mine were just home for the holiday, all three of them. They are young men now, out making their way in the world, and as is fitting to their stage in life, they are living on limited income. But when they come home, they get to feast. The refrigerator and pantry is theirs to pillage, and they don't have to ask permission. When we go out to dinner, there is no question that Dad will take care of the bill, for they are sons. They get to live under their father's blessing. They get to drink from the abundance of my house. And when the holidays were over and they packed up and left, they took with them my best shoes, my best sunglasses, some of my favorite books, climbing gear and cigars, with my absolute pleasure and blessing. Luke was the last to go. He was hoping to pillage some of my travel gear for an upcoming trip. I said, you are my son. Everything I have is yours. Plunder as you will. This is how sons get to live. This is how a father feels toward his sons. See, so many books on prayer are just storming the gates of heaven and begging God and fighting all these demons in the way like Jesus never died. <laughs> like he hasn't destroyed principalities and powers. Like he hasn't disarmed Satan. Like he hasn't destroyed Satan, Hebrews chapter 2. And we're trying to destroy the one who's already been destroyed by Jesus. Why? We don't know who we are. And our conscience is suggesting some dead works to compensate for how poorly we feel about ourselves because we don't know who we are. I've got three points to just end off with. Why do we have this evil conscience? Number one is because of the basic principles of the world. We are so saturated with those basic principles of the world. We've been raised in it. We were educated in it. Our athletic systems is all based on that. Your home life was based on that. Everything was 
If you're good, you're rewarded. If you're bad, you're punished. And so we've had this incredible indoctrination. And here's the sad thing. A lot of it comes from the preaching that we've heard. I heard Creflo Dollar say this last weekend. He said the problem with the preaching in most churches is that most pulpits are established on Mount Sinai, not on Mount Zion. We're preaching from the position of the law, not from the position of grace, the new Jerusalem. The writer of the Hebrew says we have not come to a mountain which can be burnt with fire. And he goes through all the description of Sinai. But he said, we've come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem, to the company of just men made perfect. Just men made perfect. Righteous men made perfect. It's already done. But so many are still preaching from Sinai, telling us what we should be doing instead of preaching this incredible message of what Jesus has already done. It's done. It's, you're fin it's finished. You're clean. That was the second thing. The, the pulpits are on Mount Sinai. The third thing is this. Tradition. Jesus said to the Pharisees, they were berating Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands before they ate. And Jesus got off to them. And then he, he used this illustration. He said, Here, here's what you do. He said, you say to a man, now, the scripture says, honor your father and your mother. But you say to a man, if you'll give your money as a tithe into the temple, you don't have to bear any responsibility for your mother and father. That's basically what he was saying. You tell a man, he can say, this is Corbin, this is dedicated to God, and then he doesn't have any responsibility to his parents. And he said... The first commandment with promise is honor your father and your mother. And if you're putting money into an institutional church and neglecting the care of your parents, Jesus said, you're making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. That's the illustration he uses. Ha! Some preachers need to hear that. I'm not popular when I preach that way. Because listen, if, if people understood the word of God, they'd quit supporting bad systems and they'd collapse. You make the word of God of no effect through your traditions. Let me talk about family traditions. There's so many things that we have received by tradition from the elders, Peter talks, and, and we were redeemed from those vain traditions received from the elders. But so many of us carry that and our conscience is evil. It's damaged because of the fear that our parents put upon us. Like my overeating because my dad used to always say, eat everything because you don't know if there'll be food tomorrow which was true in the way he was raised on a farm on the banks of the Vaal River with alluvial diamond diggings and the diamonds were so scarce that they found and so they were 11 children. And so every day they ate what was on the table because they weren't sure of tomorrow's food. But by the time I came along, that wasn't the case. But my daddy repeated what his mother had said to him. You understand? Some of you older folk have understand that. Because your parents went through the depression. My parents went through the depression. So hold on. 
Hasn't he made a promise about a provision yes. for every need? Yes. <laughs> See, and so many of the promises and the realities of the word are being undermined through this whole thing. I, I'm going to tell you the story. I wasn't sure if I would, but I, I will tell it to you. Because my parents had gone through the depression and because of my dad's theology and his background and so on, I grew up in a pretty legalistic home, as those of you who have read my book know. And it's, it's taken the Lord years to teach me how to rest. Because if there's one thing that my parents' generation really scorned was laziness. And so you had to be always active and always doing something productive. Right? The devil will always find things for idle hands to do, my mother kept repeating over and over again. And as a result of that, you never rest deeply. You always rest with guilt. I should be doing something. I, should, I, I can't just sit here. I should be doing something. See, which completely goes against the truth of the master comes home and says to the servant, serve me. He doesn't say to the servant, sit down here, I'll, I'll feed you. I'll wait on you. No, the master said, you wait on me. You, you. See, it's, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know who you are. Otherwise, you're going to confuse these roles. And so, uh, Bev has a friend. She used to live here in Dallas. And we had had a meeting Saturday night in Colleyville. And Sunday morning, we met her in Addison to have lunch together. And at lunch, she said this to me. She said, I had a dream about you last night. In the dream, she said, I saw the father. And he was holding you by the ankles, holding you upside down. And he was tickling you. And you were giggling, and he was giggling. And he said to me, I'm lifing, John. <laughs> I'm lifing, John. And when she woke up from the dream, the Holy Spirit said, Give John your button. And she had this big button, which I have at home. And on it, it says, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And it's actually stained with brown mud from the Dead Sea, where she had it on when she swam there. And she gave me that button. And immediately, I just started giggling. I was so excited. I was so happy. And so I had a motorcycle, and I always wanted to ride down to Key West all the way. And immediately the father said, you can ride down to Key West. So about a month later, I rode my motorcycle down to Key West. Bear flew into Fort Myers. I picked her up at the airport. We spent a few days on Sanibel Island. And then I took her back to the airport. She flew back home, and I carried on. And I was riding through the Everglades when the father said this word to me, I want you to add a phrase to your button. It's never too late to have a happy childhood without parental supervision. 
See, many of us live with the image of our parents looking over our shoulders. And they're not there to encourage us. They're there to pick on us. Tell us what we should be doing, where we should, you know. And so I carried that for years. <laughs> but I want you to know the truth of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. I am sanctified. Amen. I have been sanctified. I am in a state of being sanctified. And it doesn't matter what my parents think. They're both dead. They're both with Jesus. They know better now. But, you know, that was always the, the whole thing. And it robs you of the joy of being a son and of being a daughter and living without the haunting effects of that damaged conscience that keeps on plaguing you and then keeps on suggesting dead works that just wear you out because they're unfruitful, they're dead. I, I'm going to say this, and I know this is risky. Some of you need to quit praying. It's a dead work. You're doing it out of a sense of guilt. Just stop. Oh, oh I can't believe you said that. Yeah, but, but if you're doing it out of, out of the wrong motivation, what good is it? It's just a ritual. You're not drawing near. You're trying to earn favor. I had to quit, I had to quit praying. I was driving on the airport freeway in the mid-cities one day listening to KCBI. And they were broadcasting Chuck Swindoll. And uh, intro to his message was an outtake from, from the message. He says, isn't it amazing that the very thing God gave us to release anxiety has become the greatest source of anxiety for many Christians? And I said, boy, that's me. And he was talking on prayer. Prayer is not supposed to be a source of anxiety. It's, it's the release from anxiety. And I switched off the radio. I didn't even hear his message. I said, God, that's true. That's me. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm quitting. And I am signing up in your school of prayer. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And you taught them according to the old covenant, but I want to learn. And so I didn't pray for months. I thought. I didn't pray in the old formal ritualistic way. I entered into a conversational relationship with the Father of just chatting and enjoying His presence. And that old form of praying was really robbing me of the joy of that relationship. Now, I don't say don't pray, but I'm saying if your praying is just out of a dead work, ditch it. I was ministering in Madrid, Spain, and this woman spoke to me after the meeting and she drew me aside. She was embarrassed and in Spanish she said to me, she said, I think I've got a demon. I said, why do you think you've got a demon? She said, well, every time I, I want to read the Bible and pray, I feel as if there's something stopping me. I said, oh, that's not a demon, that's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I said the Holy Spirit is trying to wean you 
from works, dead works. You've done it as a dead work. He wants it to be life. There's no demon that can stop you from expressing the life of the Spirit within, in communion with the Father. <laughs> uh, she got free. See, it's so easy to get under these burdens of a conscience that is evil, that is damaged, that is faulty, that is, being, is pain-ridden, it's broken, and it's suggesting all these dead works as compensatory. But can I tell you the good news? Once and for all, you have been sanctified. I didn't say it. God said it. You have been sanctified. You are in a state of sanctification. Put your doubts away. Start speaking what the Word says over your life. I am clean. I have been sanctified. As God sees me as completely righteous, completely clean. Father, I'm asking you right now, let your Holy Spirit come and just wash us with the water of the Word. We receive the refreshing washing of what your Word says. Lord, we've, we've, we've just listened to the, the basic principles of the universe, the traditions of men. We've, we've listened to preaching from Mount Sinai. and I'm asking you to just wash us, Holy Spirit. Wash us with the water of the Word. Sprinkle our hearts clean from that evil conscience. It, it has been done, but we need it, an application of it. Oh, Lord, let this truth become so real in all of us. I am clean. I am sanctified. Once and for all. Hallelujah. This is the conclusion of this message. You've been listening to the ministry of John and Beverly Sheesby. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit our website, liberatedliving.com. Thank you and God bless.